Well, you can have a seat. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, if you didn't pick up a schedule on the table back there when you came in, that would be a helpful thing for you to get before you leave tonight. Just kind of gives you an idea of what's going to be happening around here uh, on Wednesday nights during the summer. There's uh, no Awana uh, right now. And so just want to be clear, you know what we're doing, when we're doing it. Uh, and just so you know, for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. So we're going to start Philippians tonight. I'm going to kind of give an introduction, a little bit of an overview uh, of the first part of the chapter of Philipp- uh, chapter 1 of Philippians. Next week, Brian Davis is going to be here. He'll finish out uh, chapter 1 of Philippians. And then from there, we'll basically look at a chapter a week. Uh, we take one week off the week of VBS. I think it's June 19th. We'll come back the week after that, finish up the book of Philippians. I um, hope you grabbed two a uh, handout for tonight. It's a simple one. If you've been coming to the 50 Core Truths class, it's a little more simple than that, right? Uh, but, but the way we did it is uh, we have just a simple outline here, uh, but we also have the scripture text written out. As we go through this study tonight, I know most of you have probably brought your own Bibles But if you want to make additional notes, maybe that won't fit in your Bible, this way you can just kind of make the notes right on the page along with the text of Scripture and um, follow along. So as we begin, just want to talk about a little bit of the background of this book. Um, First of all, it's interesting, as I was just reading through and thinking through Philippians, the thought occurred to me that if there was like an award for like the most bumper sticker worthy book of the Bible. It would be Philippians. Seriously, think about it. Uh, So many familiar passages that if you spent any time in church, these are verses that you probably know by heart, that you can quote number number one. We see in chapter one, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Later on in that chapter, Paul's famous line where he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 2, of course, there's that great Christological hymn, and then he closes that by saying, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Later in that chapter, do all things without grumbling or questioning. When I was a kid, my mom encouraged me to memorize that. We were... We're reading the King James, I think it says, do all things without murmuring or disputing. I still remember it. I must have had to say it a lot. It must have been a problem for me. Uh, You get to chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. All right, we've we've heard that, we know that. And then, of course, maybe the the most famous one, later in chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So many familiar lines in this book. And what I hope we see, though, as we go through this study, is this book is more than just bumper sticker theology. There's a whole lot here. And so as we study, we're just going to go through it, and I hope that you get a sense for the heart of Paul as the writer And the heart of the church there, Philippi, what he was writing to them about, why he was writing to them. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about 
Uh, just the historical context of this uh, book, just for a minute. Uh, first of all, you might know the phrase, the prison epistles. Um, Philippians is one of those, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, we call them that because Paul wrote them from prison. Um, but Philippi itself was, was strategic. If you go back to uh, the book of Acts, and we're going to look at this uh, in just a little while, but there's a famous Macedonian call, it says. And in your Bible, you may even have a heading that says that. Um, so this was Paul's. He was traveling around through the, these regions in Galatia, which is really modern-day Turkey. He was traveling around. He kept, he kept getting, getting rejected, right, by, by the Lord. It says he tried to go here, and no, it didn't work out. Tried to go here, didn't work out. Tried to go here, didn't work out. And then Paul has this vision in the night where there's this man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And the city that he goes to is Philippi. And he chose Philippi for a reason. It was, as I said, a strategic location. It was on this major trade route that went from the east to the west. About 400 years before uh, Paul was there, it was founded by the father of Alexander the Great. His name was Philip. So he conquered the city, named it after himself. What would be nice, right? Uh, by the time Paul got there, though, it was, it was a Roman colony. And so what that meant was that there were a lot of retired uh, Roman military people that would live there. It meant that the people who lived in Philippi were granted Roman citizenship. So they got all of the rights and privileges of anyone who lived inside the city of Rome. The residents of Philippi uh, were all eligible for that. I think it's interesting when you take that into consideration that in chapter 3, as Paul's writing to this church, he'll remind them, hey, our citizenship is in heaven. It's like you place a high value on this citizenship that you have as this Roman colony, but let me tell you, there's a greater citizenship. There's a greater calling that you have. There's greater rights and privileges that you have, and that's in heaven. We learn from Acts chapter 16, that there was not a synagogue there. That there was not very many Jews there in Philippi. A Jewish tradition would tell us that in order to establish a synagogue, you had to have ten Jewish men. But there, there must not have been even ten, because there was not a synagogue there. Uh, turn with me, if you do have your Bible, to Acts 16. I know you're like, wait a minute. We're supposed to be studying Philippians yeah, let's turn into Acts 16. So we've kind of talked a little bit about this, this Macedonian call. So Paul is traveling here, and he has a great group with him. It's Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. So we know for sure of, of those four people, maybe there were others, but we know that they had those four there. And this is what it says in Acts 16, just starting in verse 11. I don't have this on the screen. But he says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So see, no synagogue to go to. They went outside the gate to the river. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia 
from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. From there, if you keep reading the story, Paul and Silas would be walking one day to that place of prayer, and there was this demon-possessed girl that followed them every day and was harassing them and yelling at them. And finally, Paul couldn't take it anymore. And he rebuked the demon. The demon left her. And these men that, that owned this girl, that were using her to profit, they realized, hey, this was, our, this was our cash cow. This was our money-making thing. Now the demon's gone. We can't make any more money. This was a problem for them. So they got Paul and Silas thrown into prison. And so you might remember that famous story, right? At midnight, in prison, in this city, where they had gone following the leading, the clear leading of the Lord. That must have been a time of soul-searching, right? You're laying there like, God, you, you did bring me here, and here I am. But there they were at midnight, and the Bible says that they were singing songs to the Lord. And it even says that the other prisoners were listening to them, that they heard what was happening. There was this earthquake where all the prisoners could have gone free, and the, and the jailer was about to, to commit suicide. He was about to kill himself, and Paul said, no, 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 we're all here, we're all here. And the jailer says, sir, what... What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas go to his house that night, and the Bible says that his family becomes Christian. So you have this, this lady Lydia, this, this rich person, this merchant. The Bible calls her a seller of purple goods. She was, she was rich. You have this, this slave girl who had formerly demon-possessed slave girl who was now without the demon, and then you have this jailer. And that right there is the start of the Philippian church. The church at Philippi was the first church that Paul would plant in Europe. He would go from there and go to Corinth and eventually to Rome. But that's the beginning of the church. As he wrote this letter to the church, this, this letter was written about ten years after the events that we just talked about. So he's writing to them, and one of the purposes of this letter is really a, a thank you letter. He's thanking them for their support. And, and we'll see that they not only supported him once, but they supported him over and over and over. They supported him when he was free. They supported him when he was in prison. They supported him when things were going well, when things were not. This church at Philippi supported Paul and stood by him, and he's writing this letter in part to, to thank them for that. But we see some, some themes uh, emerge. Paul uses the word gospel more times in this book than any other of his letters. We see him talk about humility and, and how essential humility is. Later on in the book, we'll see that there was, there was some kind of strife happening between some of the members of the church. And so as Paul is writing, he keeps pointing them to this need for humility in order to have unity in the church. So let's start reading. We're gonna, tonight, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. And so let's read that together, and then we'll uh, look at it more slowly. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay, so you have your simple outline in front of you. The first couple verses we're just calling the greeting, keeping everything very simple, very straightforward tonight. We're going to look at the greeting. But if you're familiar with the New Testament, and in particular the writings of the Apostle Paul, uh, this greeting is a little bit different. When Paul's introducing himself, sometimes we see him use his title of apostle, right? We'll hear him say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And if Timothy or if somebody else is mentioned with him, there weren't any other apostles, right? Paul, Paul was the last one. So if Timothy is mentioned with Paul, we'll see him say something like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So you sort of, you get a sense right from the very beginning, this distinction. Paul's the apostle. Timothy's, Timothy's a brother, right? He's not an apostle. You see that in 1 Corinthians and in uh, Colossians. That's how Paul introduces himself. But here, he says, Paul and Timothy servants. You may have a note in your Bible that that word could be slaves, could be bond servants. Paul and Timothy, slaves. But then he says, we're, we're servants, slaves of Christ Jesus. You know, every servant has a master, right? The idea of being a servant, being a slave, is that, that you belong to somebody, that somebody owns you. Kind of reminds you of what Paul wrote. In Corinthians, right? Your body is not your own. You've been bought with a price. But the other thing that we see here is a lot of times Paul uses these greetings in his letters to give just a little hint where he's going in the book, what he's going to be talking about. So I don't think it's a coincidence that he uses this very common, very humble term, just as Paul and Timothy, servants, Christ Jesus. Because he's going to talk about humility. He's going to talk about, in chapter 2, he's going to talk about Christ and say, Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. So here, even at the very beginning, he's identifying with Christ, and he's saying, hey, this is the example that you need to follow. This is the humility, this is the mindset that you need, right from the very beginning. This mention of Christ, he mentions Christ 61 times just in this short little letter. You get this idea that he just keeps pointing this church to Christ, pointing this church to the head of the church. But he writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Saints is an interesting word. 
holy people of God. And they're this way, not because they're good, but because Christ has made it possible, right? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Christ is the one who's responsible for making them saints. Christ is the one who's responsible for making us saints, right? There's nothing holy about us. There's nothing saintly about us. You might hear that phrase, right? Like, well, she's such a a saint. But what he's talking about here is what only Christ can do. And even in this word, we see these twin truths that are going to keep reappearing, keep popping up throughout this book. This truth of what God has done in his divine sovereignty and now what we must do. So God has made us saints. There's nothing we could do to cause that to happen. But throughout this book, Paul's going to give instructions Because you are a saint in Christ Jesus, now here's how you must live as a saint. God has done it, now here's what we must do. It's what Peter would say in his epistle, 1 Peter 1, verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. There's something that we are responsible to do. And so in one sense, in this one word, the word saints points back to what Christ has done. It also points forward to now how we are working in the power that Christ has accomplished for us. It's important that we recognize our identity in Christ Jesus. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But, but Paul, and, and nowhere in the New Testament, when, when they give sort of ethical instructions, moral instructions. They're not saying, okay, you need to become something that you're not. You're bad. You need to become good. No, he's saying more and more you need to increasingly resemble what you are. That's that's sanctification, is that as we grow closer to Christ, we are more and more becoming like him. And so the question is, well, how can people like us be called saints is answered by that next phrase, in Christ Jesus. This was Paul's goal. Chapter 3, he said, my goal is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He keeps hammering this idea of in Christ, what it means to be in him. In fact, he uses that phrase, in Christ, in him, in the Lord, over 20 times, just in this short little letter. Uh, John Stott, who actually the pastor mentioned in a sermon on Sunday, John R.W. Stott, tells us that, that Paul uses this phrase 164 times in his letters. And we see 20 of them just here in the, in the short book of Philippians. Because who we are in Christ makes all the difference, right? In Christ, we're people with new feelings, with new desires, with new motivations, with new attitudes, with new... Abilities. To be in Christ means that we have everything necessary for our present and our future welfare. But he writes to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and then he includes this with the overseers and deacons. We don't ever see any other mention like this in any of Paul's other letters. He'll say, you know, I'm writing to this church, or, or to the saints here in this church, in this city. He never includes the leaders of the church in his greeting. 
I think it's, I think it's interesting. <laughs> Not to mention, he mentions them right at the beginning in this greeting and then never mentions them again. So you can read the rest of the book of Philippians. You'll never see him say, now you overseers, listen up. You deacons, listen up. It's like he mentions them right at the very beginning, but then never brings them up again. I think, again, we think about this humility. I think it's important that he, he says, I'm writing to the saints in Christ Jesus' heart, Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. These, these men are in charge, right? They're the leadership of the church, but they're not above the church. They're not lording over the church in some way. They're, they're, they're with the church. This is the kind of leadership that the body of Christ needs, the kind of leadership that Christ exemplified that we'll, we'll read more about in chapter 2. But then he continues, grace to you, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. You know, a traditional way to begin a letter at this time would just be to say greetings. Paul takes that and says, no, you know, we're going to insert some gospel stuff right here from the very beginning. Grace to to you. And then he adds this traditional Jewish, the shalom idea, this peace, this wholeness, this fullness idea. You know, all of God's activity toward us is graceful activity. And because of his grace, now we have peace. Not only peace with God, but peace with each other. And so as he gets in this book and we start talking about unity in the body and standing firm side by side, it's this idea that God has accomplished this peace in our lives. Well, let's continue walking through the passage here. Uh, let's look at, at what he says in this, this section we're calling a prayer of thanksgiving. So verses 3 to 8. He starts out and he says, Look, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. You know, before Paul ever gets to any teaching, any instruction in this book, in this letter, the first thing he does is he prays for this church, and then he tells them that he's praying for them. He doesn't just pray for them, he says, I'm praying for you. E.M. Uh, e. Bounds said it this way, he said, talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. He will never talk well to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men. The people in your, in your life that you'd like to see come to know Christ, maybe people in your family, maybe people in your neighborhood, people that you work with, do you pray for them? Before you can ever talk to them about the Lord, you've got to talk to God about them. But then not only that, but do they know it? Do they know that you're praying for them? Paul, probably, I mean, I'm assuming he prayed a lot. He could have just assumed, like, you know what? I'm sure they know I'm praying for them. <laughs> but no, he doesn't do that. He reminds them, I thank my God on all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He's saying, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you a lot, and I want you to know about it. He makes his prayer with joy, he says. Joy is one of the most basic experiences of the Christian life. Maybe fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy 
that transcends our circumstances. You know, you think about that. Remember, Paul's writing. He's, he's not free. He's imprisoned right now. He's writing this letter to this church as a prisoner, and he's talking about being joyful, and he'll continue to talk about being joyful. As we talked about, he'll say things like, Rejoice always. He makes his prayer with joy. And he does that, why, in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The partnership in the gospel. So I said in our introduction that the Philippian church had supported him in his missionary efforts. And this is a great picture here of how they weren't the ones traveling around, right? They weren't the ones going around to different cities and getting stoned and flogged and imprisoned and in all this trouble, but, but they were, in a sense, right? They were partners in this gospel work because they were supporting him. So we think about that. In this church here, there are so many opportunities to get involved in mission work. If you say, you know, I just can't, I can't go for whatever reason. I can't go because of health. I can't go because of this or that. What can you do? What can you do? Can you, can you pray? Can you give? And so here he's commending the Philippians for being partners with him in the gospel because they have supported him as he's been working. And he says in verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What's this good work he's talking about? He who began a good work in you. I think it's, it's God's work of calling people to himself. It's, it's salvation, right? He who began a good work in you, meaning salvation. At the beginning of your salvation, I am sure that God's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Remember in the passage I read in Acts 16, Paul is down there by the river. He's talking to the women that have come there to pray. And it mentions Lydia, but then it says, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention, opened her heart to believe what Paul was saying. It's a good reminder for us that, that no argument is going to be polished enough, persuasive enough, right? I used to think that, right? And if I can just, just learn all the right answers, right? I can convince this person and convince this person. No, nothing of that is going to matter unless God intervenes, unless God opens their heart, unless he opens their ears. You know, if our salvation was based on us choosing Christ, we would be in so much trouble. <laughs> because we are, are fickle people, aren't we? So how can Paul be so sure? He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How can he speak so confidently about this? Because it's God's work. God's the one who starts it. God's the one who continues it. God's the one who completes it. God doesn't lie. He doesn't change. He doesn't grow tired or weary. His plan cannot be stopped. So that's why Paul can say, I am sure of this, that he'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But he continues. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This is, just, this is Paul saying, you've supported me when I've been in prison, when I've not been in prison, 
And he says, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I think this good work, this salvation work that he talks about in verse 6, verse 7 is his way of saying, well, here's the evidences that I have that your salvation is true. Verse 6, he talks about the good work of salvation. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. And then he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Here's why. Here's the evidences of grace that I see in your life. Here's the reason why I think that, that you are, are believers. This is Paul saying, you know, true salvation has noticeable effects. A lot of times, one of the most effective ways to talk about salvation is to talk about this, this death-to-life idea. Ephesians chapter 2, we, we quote that and talk about it a lot around here, that we were dead in our trespasses, right? That no corpse has the power to make itself alive. But when a corpse is made alive, it's going to behave in ways that a corpse could never do, right? And has never done. So Paul here is saying, your salvation has these noticeable effects. Here's the evidences of grace that I see in you. Are you concerned about the spread of the gospel? Yes, you are. You've been partakers with me of grace. You've been partners in this gospel ministry. Uh, one commentator said it like this, if the professed awareness of being a child of God is not matched by the outward evidence of the kind of life a child of God should live, is not the awareness a thin or even an unreal thing? It's a good warning to us to just pause to examine ourselves, to examine our lives. But he continues, verse 8, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Notice the emotion here. Paul's writing to this church. and Notice his, his love for these people. I think sometimes maybe, you know, we think about Paul, this prolific gospel writer, this man of incredible intelligence. Paul was not some dry, academic guy. Sometimes we have the tendency to maybe elevate this sort of stoic personality and say, you know, this, this, is, this is true maturity right here. But here's Paul pouring his soul out to these people. God is my witness. He calls God as his witness. He yearns for them, he says, with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, as you're learning and growing closer to the Lord, if your learning isn't making you more loving, then something's wrong. Like something is, is deficient there in the doctrine that you're learning. And we'll see that as we continue. Let's, let's look at verse 9. So we see his prayer of thanksgiving, but this last part is really where he, he starts to tell them what his prayer is for them moving forward, his prayer of petition. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And one of the main ways that we show Christian love for each other is by, by praying for each other. Now, are, you, are you praying for your spouse? Are you praying for your, your pastor? Maybe are, are you praying for even the people that, that you sit around on Sunday, right? We all have our sections, don't we? I can look out and I can tell if you're in church or not, because you're always sitting in the same spot. 
Are you praying for the people that you sit around on, on Sunday? Paul here is saying, here's my prayer. My prayer is that your love may abound more and more. Paul wasn't telling them, hey, look, you need to be more loving. I think, I think the church had that. You know, as you go back to Acts 16 and look at the hospitality of that church, Lydia, you know, the, the church there, the church that Paul planted, started meeting in Lydia's house. Who knows? Maybe 10 years later, maybe they were still meeting in Lydia's house. We don't know. But so, so Lydia was hosting this church. The Philippian jailer right, invited Paul and Silas to his home, washed them up, cleaned them up. Even when, when things got hostile for, for Paul there, too hostile for him to stay in Philippi, the church continued to help him and support him. I, I think the church was loving, the church was hospitable, but Paul here is saying, look, you need to take this love that you have, and I want it to abound more and more and more. But it's not just blind love. He says, I want it to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This is knowledge that cultivates love. And so, I think Paul here is telling us to avoid both extremes. He's saying, look, knowledge without love is false. That's what I was talking about a couple minutes ago, right? As you're, as you're getting more knowledge about the Lord, if it's not leading to a more loving spirit, loving God, but also loving each other, then something's wrong. So knowledge without love is false, but love without knowledge is it's just mindless. It's just purely sentimental. So Paul's saying, avoid both of those extremes. I want your love to abound more and more, and I want you to have knowledge and discernment with it. I want you to have a discerning love. So that, verse 10, why do we need this love? Why do we need it to be full of knowledge and discernment? So that you may approve what is excellent. What's he mean, approve what is excellent? This word approve literally has this idea of of test drive, so that you can make an informed decision between options. So even if you use that word, even in this time, it would be like if somebody was going to buy a yoke of oxen, right? He would want to hook up a plow. Let's see if these oxen can pull, right? What Can they do what they say they can do? I'm going to test drive them. I want to make an informed decision so that you can approve you can make an informed decision, but what, he, what is he talking about? Not just between good and bad things. I think we can assume that for sure, right? So you can make a decision between the things that are good and the things that are bad. But I think there's, there's also making a choice between what is good and what is best. Making a choice between things that are essential and things that are, are not essential. The missionary C.T. Studd talked about that, where he talked about temporal things and eternal things. He said, only one life, and it will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. That doesn't mean that there's all these, these bad things that you're going to be doing. No, it means that it, it's a very easy temptation to just waste your life on, on good things, when there's better things that God is calling us to. So this... This ability to approve, to choose what is best. You know, Paul would write about that uh, in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, where he's writing to these believers who were condemning other believers over these, these issues that, that weren't God-given commands, that they were preferences. And he was trying to say, he was trying to explain to them, look, 
You've, you've got to understand that some of these things that you're fighting about are not as essential as you think. If you wonder if that kind of thing's still going on, you just got to open up Twitter any day, any time, and you'll find people just going crazy about just the most ridiculous things, the most non-essential things. Paul is here saying, let's discern. Let's make an informed decision about what's good and what's best. So you may approve what is excellent, he says. This word carries with it the idea, certainly, of moral superiority, which one is, is right. But again, it has that same idea of, of more essential and less significant. Jesus would use this word in Matthew chapter 12, where he just asks rhetorically, right, of how much more value is a man than a sheep, of how much more value, how much more excellent. So you may approve what is excellent. Why? So that you can be pure and blameless. So it says two things, pure and blameless. You may have a translation for the, the word pure that says sincere. Basically means the same thing. This word literally has the idea of, of testing by sunlight. What that means is, uh, historians will tell us, like, at this time, if you were a potter, and you were a dishonest potter, and you had a, a bowl that had a bunch of cracks in it, what you do is you just kind of fill it with wax, fill those cracks with wax, paint over it, and nobody would ever know. Until you hold that bowl up to the sunlight. Right, and then you can see, okay, well, there's all these cracks. This isn't going to work. So an honest tradesman would, would put a sign above his pottery, and he would include these two words, sincera, without wax. Sincere. And Paul here is saying, so you can be pure, so you can be sincere. Paul could have used it. There's a lot of words that he could have used to get that point across, but he chose one that talked about living a life that doesn't have anything to hide. I mean, there's great freedom in that, isn't there? If you've ever, if ever lived and you know that, man, I'm, I'm in sin, I'm in this secret sin, I'm in this private sin that I don't want anybody to know about, that's a rough way to live. Always kind of looking over your shoulder, is, is my secret going to be found out? And Paul's here saying, be, be pure, be sincere. Live a life that, that you don't have things to hide. But he says, not only that, be pure, but be blameless. This word doesn't only have the, the meaning of being blameless yourself, but it has the idea of, of not causing other people to stumble. To be blameless in a way where you're living your life in such a way that you're not stumbling, but you're also not allowing anyone else to stumble around you. We're to help each other grow in holiness, not trip each other up. Be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. As we talk about this day, I don't know, just recently in our 50 Core Truths, uh, series. We talked about end times sort of things. I'm glad I didn't teach one of those nights. But, you know, it's so interesting because in the Bible, the focus of those end time events are always so different than ours. 
right? We want to have the maps. We want to have like the timelines. We want to know like when is this happening and when is this happening and who's going to be here and who's not going to be here. In the Bible, the focus is always in light of this day, how are we supposed to live? What are we supposed to do today that prepares us for that day? And that's what, that's what Peter would write in, in 2 Peter as he's writing all these things about, about the end times. He closes by saying, what sort of people ought you to be? Because of this, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Because this is the day that we're not only moving towards, we're striving for it, Right? It's not like you're at the airport on one of those moving sidewalks where you're just kind of standing there, you're moving to it no matter what. No, this is, as Christians, this is the day that we're, we long for, right? So we're not just moving to this day, we're, we're trying to move towards this day, we're striving for this day. It's this idea of, of the great hymn, and we've sung it in here not that long ago. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is our last verse. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You think about this this fruit metaphor. It's one that keeps popping up throughout Scripture. So whether you... Maybe your mind first turns to Galatians 5 with with the fruit of the Spirit. We've already talked about that tonight. Maybe you think about the Old Testament, Psalm 1, where it talks about this righteous man, like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth its fruit in its season. He says, again, that that if you are in Christ, you, you will bear fruit. And we do this to the glory and praise of God. It's all for his glory. It's all for his praise. It's the aim of everything that we do. So you think about Paul. You think about him sitting in in prison uh, hundreds of miles away. He's in Rome, most likely. And he's writing to this church in Philippi. He's thinking about these Christians. He's praying for them. He's thanking God for them. And his prayer is a model for us. You know, it's a good thing for us as we, as we read the Bible to use the prayers that are written as, as models to guide our own. I don't mean for you to just pray these exact words every single day for the rest of your life. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying, right? When, he, when the disciples said, teach us to pray. And he said, okay, well, when you pray, pray like this. But his prayer served as a model. There's things that we can learn from this prayer to help our prayers. And so, man, as I, as I think about how I can pray for my family, as I think about how I can pray for this church, what a great thing to pray. Pray that your love may abound more and more, that you may be filled with knowledge and discernment so that you can approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's, a, there's an interesting passage. This is a weird way to end. <laughs> I probably should have thought this through a little more. Um, there, there's a strange passage in Mark, uh, chapter 4. If you have your Bible, just turn there real quick. 
Mark chapter 4, Jesus is speaking, and he gives this parable of seed growing. And we'll start in verse 26. He says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And you're like, what? (laughs) What? I'm going to need you to repeat that, Jesus. But see what he's saying here? He plants seed, and it sprouts up, and he doesn't know how. I think as we think about our lives in Christ, there's going to be moments just like that. There's going to be moments that will not be easy, that we are certainly not perfect, that we will fail, that we will fall, that we'll be neglectful, that our our times in the Word might just feel like drudgery, that our our prayers might seem like nothing's, nothing's happening, Right? Nothing's getting through, that, that we're forgetful spiritually. But if you are in Christ, we can say with Paul that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our future is secure because it's God's work. And to him alone belongs the glory. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great privilege that we have to read it, to study it, to meditate on it. I pray that you would make us people of the word, that we would be pure and blameless, that our love for you and for each other would abound more and more, that you would make us more like Christ. For your glory and in your great name we pray. Amen.